Last Sunday, we began our sermon series called Lessons by the Lake, and we looked at the calling of the first disciples. We studied the word follow, and we looked briefly at what Jesus called the wide and narrow roads. And I want to look one more time today at another such calling, but we're going to look at this one from a slightly different angle. In the process of making disciples, which is what we as Christ Church have been commissioned to do by Jesus himself, uh, there are stages to this. And the first of these stages for Jesus was selecting those who would be his disciples during the time of his ministry and then after his death, resurrection, and return to heaven. Jesus chose his 12. And rather than simply racing through the list of the 12, wanting to get on to his teaching, I found myself pausing at the calling of those 12 and finding even there lessons to be learned. Each calling was significant. Each disciple, significant. I, as a follower of Jesus, am significant. And the story of my own calling and your calling as a disciple of Christ is significant. It's worth visiting. So I want to take a look today at the calling of Matthew. It really is a fascinating story when you consider everything that makes up the context of his calling to follow Christ. Uh, There is something there to be learned for sure. Every action and word of Jesus Christ is deliberate, intentional, and it is stunning sometimes to sit down and explore the depth of each of those stories. This is God acting. This is God talking, and we need to pay attention to that. The account of the calling of Matthew is found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we're actually going to look into the Luke account this morning. So turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one to follow along, do some reading around that area, just put your hand up and our ushers will bring you a Bible. Um, Our primary text is the one we're going to read in just a minute, and it will be up on the screen the whole time. Um, We'll refer back to it several times. But if you want to have a Bible in your hand, just uh, keep that hand up and they'll get you one right now. So go to Luke chapter 5 and we're going to begin at verse 27. Luke 5, 27, and we're going to read through verse 32. This is what it says. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, let's dive into the depth of this story. Uh, We have a lot to learn from Jesus early on in his ministry. I want to look at six different aspects of this story with you this morning. Each one plays a role in the significance of this event, and I don't want you to miss that significance. Um, This really was an, an incredible event. The first aspect of this story that I want to visit is the disciple. The disciple. Who was Levi? What do we know about him? Uh, Why did I say that we're going to look at Matthew this morning, and now I'm talking about someone named Levi? Well, first of all, like many other people in the time of this disciple, Levi had more than one name. It was very common at that time for people to have two or three names. They'd have a Jewish name, a Roman name, and possibly a Greek name as well. Levi was his Jewish name. He was known as Levi, 
the son of Alphaeus, to the Jews. Matthew was his Roman name. Now, most everyone knew who Matthew was. He was a tax collector. And Jesus would likely have seen Matthew before out collecting taxes at his booth. And Matthew likewise would have seen Jesus and heard him and seen of, uh, heard of the things that he had done. They were both public figures. Matthew had an eye for detail and he kept good records. And that's something that we can see not just in the fact that he was a tax collector, but also in his writing style. Matthew is described this way by Bible scholar John MacArthur. A humble, self-effacing man who kept himself almost completely in the background throughout his lengthy account of Jesus' life and ministry. That's how he was described. Matthew only mentions his own name twice in his entire gospel. Once around this event, the calling to follow, and then once when the 12 disciples were listed. That's the only time you're going to see him refer to himself. The rest of the gospel, he doesn't. Matthew is Jewish. He was very familiar with the Old Testament. In his gospel, he quotes the Old Testament 99 times. 99 times. That's more than Mark, Luke, and John combined. That's how familiar he was with the Old Testament. And he quotes from the full range of Scripture at that time. He quotes from the law, from the Psalms, and the prophets. And this is pretty remarkable for someone who had been banished from the synagogue. And I'll explain more on that later. Uh, Matthew was also certainly the most notorious sinner of the 12 that were called. Matthew was committed to Jesus from the day he was called. He left a life of wealth as a tax collector, and he never looked back, and he would never be able to return to that profession again once he abandoned it the way that he did. And tradition holds that even though he had been cast out by the Jewish community, Matthew spent the rest of his life reaching out to the Jews, both in Israel and abroad, in spite of how they had treated him. Tradition also holds that he was martyred for his faith by being burned at the stake. This is Matthew, and knowing something about him is going to help us understand the significance of him being chosen as a disciple. Jesus was teaching the world something by doing this, by calling Matthew. The second aspect of this story that I want to look at here is the booth. Verse 27 says that Jesus saw Levi, or Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. What was that like? Well, the booth was simply just an elevated bench or a platform in a public place. And that particular place was in the town of Capernaum, which was up in the north side, the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was a customs post. It was situated on the caravan route between Damascus to the northeast and the Mediterranean Sea to the west. Matthew worked for the Romans as a tax collector. His business was uh, a franchise purchased from the Roman emperor, who was Herod Antipas at that time. Matthew collected tolls and custom taxes on goods that were being transported from sea to land. That was his thing. Merchants were passing through, and the tax collectors would collect the specified taxes on their transit, as well as some made-up taxes for themselves. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. Now, there were two kinds of tax collectors at that time. The gabai was the first one. The gabai were general tax collectors. They collected property tax, income tax, poll tax, the taxes that they collected were set rates, and there was not a lot of stealing amongst these tax collectors. They had a very specific role that they paid, and people paid them uh, a specific amount of money. And then there were the mohes. The mohes collected the duty 
on imports and exports and anything that was moved by the road system was fair game for the taxes that they collected. And so they taxed anything that they wanted that was related to transport and they pocketed the money themselves above and beyond government tax. Uh, they taxed donkeys. They taxed axles on the wheels of carts and chariots and those kinds of things. Um, they made up anything that could be related to the transport of goods, and then they took that money and put it in their own pockets. There were two kinds of mohes. The great mohesque, and these were men who hired collectors to collect the money for them. They didn't collect the money themselves. Now, if you remember back to your childhood, to those great stories, uh, one of our favorite characters was Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the tax collector. Zacchaeus was a great mohes. He hired somebody else to collect the money for him. And then there were the little mohes. And Matthew was one of these. He did the collecting himself. The public saw him face to face and paid him directly. He was a very familiar face where he was. And so we have Matthew of Jewish heritage, who's left his Jewish roots and become a tax collector. And this is a little more than just a career change. This is a step as far down the social ladder as one can possibly go. Uh, look at verse 30 again. It says this, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, in the Matthew account in the New Living Translation, which I really like, that verse says this, The Pharisees were indignant. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? They asked the disciples. Okay, so why such strong language? Well, tax collectors were not exactly held in high regard. The Pharisees had major issues with this bunch. The stealing was one of them. They couldn't handle the fact that the tax collectors stole by extracting taxes that they made up and that went straight into their pockets. They didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that tax collectors supported Rome, which the Jews did not. And they had regular contact, the tax collectors had regular contact with the unclean, with the Gentiles, and so that made tax collectors unclean themselves. And because the tax collectors did not practice the Jewish purification rituals, they could not eat with the Jews. They were not allowed to. And there's more coming on that. If someone did not practice the Jewish rituals, it was then that he was considered by the Pharisees a sinner. And Matthew was not just a tax collector, but he was a Jew who had become a tax collector. He had brought shame on himself and on his family. He was excommunicated from the synagogue because of it. He was considered a traitor on top of everything else. Tax collectors were referred to on the same level as prostitutes. Jesus made a statement contrasting those who received his message and those who did not. And those who did included the prostitutes and the tax collectors. The tax collectors and harlots would enter the kingdom before the Pharisees would. That was part of what Jesus said. Tax collectors were considered by the Jews as lower than the Herodians. And the Herodians were Jews who were loyal to the Herods, the Romans. The tax collectors were worthy of more scorn than the Roman soldiers in the eyes of the Jews. Now it's interesting that three tax collectors are mentioned in the Gospels. And every one of them is mentioned in the context of a discussion on forgiveness. The phrase, even the tax collectors, is found in Luke chapter 7. They were the extreme negative example. 
Tax collectors were viewed as despicable men. Uh, it was even acceptable for the Jews. In Jewish law, it was acceptable for the Jews to deceive or lie to a tax collector simply because he deserved it. So, scum is probably not too harsh of a term here. Now, I don't view my tax guy this way. Um, I, I know there are many complaints about the tax system in our country and all that kind of stuff, but, but it works. I am very happy to live in a city like this where um, our tax money goes towards providing this beautiful environment for us to live in. Uh, we have fantastic roads, uh, believe it or not. I know at this time of the year it doesn't feel like that, but we do. We have a great road system. We have unbelievable parks. We have a government who takes care of our environment here and provides this great place for us to live. That's our tax money at work. And I've lived in too many countries where there is no tax system. Because of that, there is no infrastructure. And without infrastructure, there's no stability. And I've seen the other side of that. I've seen what it's like without it. Um, we've had our share of run-ins with uh, the tax people. Uh, when we first got back from Senegal, we started receiving these letters from the IRS saying that we had filed a fraudulent tax return. Now, fraudulent tax return comes with the tag felony. And I was being threatened with some pretty hefty charges. Now, we had done nothing wrong, nothing, okay? Um, our tax guy who had prepared our taxes for us and turned them in um, went to investigate this, and they, had, they were accusing us of something we had done years before, which was actually pretty ridiculous because we weren't actually living in the country at that time, but somehow they had come up with this charge against us. And uh, so our tax guy went to bat for us and, and took our, our tax uh, returns, uh, all of them, to his colleagues all around him and said, can you find anything wrong with these? And not one. Nobody could find anything wrong with them. He finally went to the, the state tax commission, and they went to bat for us with the IRS and got it sorted out. And uh, eventually, after much stress and probably an ulcer or two, um, it got sorted out and the IRS said, yeah, we, we did make a mistake, this, this shouldn't have happened. Now here's your bill for all the trouble you caused us. And we had to pay hundreds of dollars to get out of that thing for not having done anything, for their mistake. Um, still, not bitter towards the tax people, okay? <clears throat> Last fall, this is all years behind us now, we're hoping. Last fall, I get this phone call from my dad. And we, we get the small talk out of the way and, and all that kind of stuff. We always talk about the weather because they live in Oklahoma and there's always the threat that their house is going to be picked up and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, we get that out of the way and then there's like this awkward silence. And we usually don't have an awkward silence between me and my dad. Um, and he finally goes, um, Paul, he says... Um, Listen, he says, I need an honest answer from you right now. He says, um, do you have some big debt that you can't pay off? <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, well, we just got this letter addressed to you that came to our house from a collection agency, and it's pretty threatening. And I'm like, oh, man, here we go again. <laughs> and so I had him give me the number that was on the letter, and, and I said, I'm going to hang up right now, and I'm going to call it, and, and I'll call you back. And, and uh, I hung up the phone and called this number and, and, uh, and, and got this collection agency, and I'm, look, and I'm like, look, you've, you've got to explain this to me because I have no idea what this is all about. And she pulls it up on the computer and says, oh, it's the IRS. I'm like, oh, 
here we go. <laughs> and she goes, and I said, this was all dealt with. I said, can I send you proof, documentation, that this was taken care of? It's over. Uh, she goes, hang on a second, let me do a little more research. And she goes further into the file, and she goes, oh, oh, she says, no problem, it just got missed in the system. Of course. And so years before, uh, when things had gotten cleared up, it stayed in the system, and so then automatically after X number of years, it popped up again at a collection agency to go and get this money that we were said to have owed the government. And uh, it never got taken out of the computer system. And so there we were on that list for a little while longer. <laughs> so anyway, got that cleared up, hung up the phone, called my dad. You could just hear the relief just ooze out of him. <laughs> he was just like, okay, good. <laughs> but still, no bitterness towards the tax people, okay? Imagine if we still lived in the kind of environment that existed when Jesus was around. Now, we would probably view the tax collectors just like everybody else did, if that's what they did. Now, imagine how stunning it must have been for Matthew to hear Jesus call him to follow. What would that have been like? Matthew knew about his own reputation. What would that have meant to him? Matthew left everything at once and he followed Jesus. Yet another bold commitment from one whom Jesus called. Leave it all behind and walk with the Savior. Uh, we saw that with Peter, Andrew, James, and John last week. No hesitation, no reservation, all in. So we've looked now at the disciple, the booth, the scum. Now let's look at how Matthew responded to the calling of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the banquet. Verse 29 says this. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Matthew gets up and follows Jesus, and then he what? He throws a party. He throws a party, and he invites other scum to join the party. How terribly inappropriate that is no way to honor the Messiah. Invite your lowlife, unclean, scum-of-the-earth friends and expect him to show up and be honored by that. What in the world was Matthew thinking? And, and I can't even pretend to be a Pharisee because I know my Savior too well. And nothing would have thrilled Jesus more than exactly what Matthew did. Nothing. Matthew calls his friends, the outcasts, the sinners, those that could not be reached in the synagogue, and he invites them to a party to meet his friend. Matthew is proud of Jesus, and he wants to introduce him around. He wants to honor him, and he's not hung up on religious protocol. So get out your mirrors now. Uh, it's time once again for us to do a little self-check. Are you that excited about knowing Jesus? When you first came to Christ, did you tell everyone that you knew? Now that you know so much about Christ, do you have a desire to share that knowledge with everyone you know? What's stopping us from throwing a party in Christ's honor and inviting all of our friends? I doubt that it's anything legitimate that's stopping us. I doubt that Matthew had time to do a spiritual gifts inventory to see if evangelism popped up in the results. 
I think the right kind of pride motivated him. He was proud to know Jesus. And I think the wrong kind of pride silences us. And yes, I include myself in this self-examination. I would love to have been at that party. The love on Jesus' face must have just lit up the room. But first he had to address the dark cloud that was looming nearby. The Pharisees were there, asking in their nice, polite way why Jesus would associate with such riffraff. And his response is legendary. In the Matthew account of this passage, this is what it says. This is from Matthew 9, 12 and 13. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we'll get to the doctor analogy in in a minute here. But first, let's look at the reprimand. Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. Now, go and learn what this means was a phrase that was used in that time on students who studied the scriptures but did not understand or apply correctly the scriptures. Jesus was telling the Pharisees to go back and study more. They didn't get it. They were being made to stay after class. Jesus was treating them like students even though they thought they had arrived as righteous, holy men. And yeah, that probably made them a little angry. Jesus had enemies right from the very start of his ministry because he refused to tolerate the arrogance and the self-righteous religious leaders of that time. And so his response to their judgment and criticism was simply to turn it back on them. If you know the meaning of the scriptures so well, why haven't you gotten this one? And he referred to a saying that they should have figured out long, long ago. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That was what they were supposed to go back and learn. Now back way up, and this will be up on the screen, back way up to the book of Hosea. And Hosea 6, verse 6 says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire more than ritual and tradition is what he was saying. I desire what is on the inside, not on the outside. I desire compassion, not religion. I desire your attention, not your rituals. This was not a new problem. Uh, You go back into the scriptures, into the Old Testament, and you will find all of these references to that exact same idea. The prophets had struggled with this in terms of communicating this from God to the people around them. Um, Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, it brings out this idea that obedience is better than sacrifice. Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, God does not want burnt offering. He wants our lifelong sacrifice. Psalm 51, 16 to 19, God's not interested in penance. He wants a broken and contrite heart. Jeremiah 7, verses 21 to 23, God does not want sacrifices. He wants our obedience. Amos 5, verses 21 to 24, God hates pretense and hypocrisy. He wants to see justice roll on like a river. And the verses that we know from Micah chapter 6, we know Micah 6, 8 well, but the concept there is that God is not satisfied with offerings. He wants us to be fair and just and merciful and to walk humbly with him. This kind of lesson had been taught over and over again for many, many, many years. For a long time, God had been condemning a thoughtless, mechanical approach to sacrifice, to religion. Ritual was losing its meaning 
and becoming a mockery to God. Now here's Jesus in our story pointing out the exact same thing. And lastly, I want us to look at the doctor. Look at verse 31 in our Luke passage. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus uses the analogy of a doctor to describe his ministry. He is the doctor who desires mercy. There were many, many walls that existed between people in Jesus' time, and they still do to this day. But Jesus himself would be the force that broke down those walls. He wants us to be the same thing. God's mercy is available for everyone, everyone. Uh, There's an image that I found while looking for some background graphics for these PowerPoint slides. I was searching the word mercy, and this image jumped out at me. This is the U.S. Naval Hospital ship, Mercy. This is the lead ship in the fleet that has saved countless lives around the world. It has tremendous capacity. Uh, There are a thousand beds on this ship, a thousand beds. And in only one of the missions that this ship, this one ship out of this whole fleet, in one mission that this ship has been on, the staff treated over 62,000 outpatients. And that was not Haiti. I don't know what the final number is from Haiti, but this was from another one several years back. There are many departments available on this ship, and they include casualty reception, radiological services, intensive care, and a morgue. And yes, I'm only listing the departments that could be used as spiritual analogies. This ship and its purpose could be used as a spiritual analogy. Uh, As confusing as it would be to onlookers, wouldn't the name USS Mercy work for a church? I think it would be great. It should. Mercy should be one of our defining characteristics as God's family, as his church. Followers of Jesus should be known as merciful people. Would somebody describe you as a merciful person? Would somebody describe me as a merciful person? Anyone would describe Jesus as a merciful person. And he didn't have to say, I desire mercy for people to know that mercy was a high value in his life. That was obvious from the start and became more obvious as his life and his ministry went by. The very act of calling Matthew as one of his disciples was an act of mercy. And Matthew knew it. And it changed Matthew's life and the lives of many more to follow because of the witness of Matthew who had been extended such incredible mercy. I love that Jesus refers to himself as a doctor in this passage. Now think about that analogy for a minute. Think about your own doctor. Does your doctor come and visit you when you are well? Well, Imagine what that would be like. Your doctor shows up at your door this weekend, um, just wanted to see how the well are doing. Probably not going to happen. We have a great pediatrician, and he has actually called us at home out of the blue just to see how we're doing. Now that's rare. Uh, A doctor typically makes a declaration simply by becoming a doctor. His or her name shows up in the yellow pages and suddenly people know that there's a doctor there. And then the rest is up to us. When you're sick, you call. You visit the doctor. Doctors don't race around communities knocking on doors hoping to be the first doctor to get to someone who's sick so that they can get their business. And Jesus simply says, I can heal. I can restore I can give life. I am life. 
And the sick respond by saying, I need you. Matthew acted on his need by following Jesus. Peter did the same. The Apostle Paul also recognized his need for mercy. The other Paul, Paul McBeady, recognizes his need for mercy and so he follows Jesus. Because I know that in Christ can be found the healing and the restoration that make life worthwhile and meaningful. What about you this morning? Have you acknowledged Christ as the great physician? Are you sitting there waiting for him to come to you and wondering why he doesn't seem to show up? Or are you willing to say to Christ, I need you. I am sick with sin. And only you can heal me. Mercy is the coming together of our need and God's resources which are adequate to meet that need. Paul writes in Ephesians that God is rich in mercy. He's not lacking for those who seek his mercy. Mercy is a gift that is given to the guilty, and that's us. We're guilty and we need to be crying out to be begging for mercy. Something that we need to realize is that we are constantly in need of mercy. It is mercy that brought us salvation. It is mercy that holds us up. Um, I love this quote. If our greatest need was for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need was for technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need was for pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. If our greatest need was for money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need is for mercy, God sent us a savior. And as that savior walked the road marked by an outpouring of mercy, he called to those around him to come and follow him, to walk that road and to learn to extend that mercy to others. Freely we have received mercy and freely we are to extend mercy. Uh, You know who gets this? Steiger International gets this. What an honor it is to support an organization like this. In their eyes, there is nobody beyond the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so they go to the darkest places in the world where the sinners and tax collectors of our day hang out. They go to the people that Jesus loves. They go with a message of mercy. And by the hundreds, people in those places cry out for mercy and God is pleased. Just remember that today's the deadline to turn in your your faith pledge cards for our missions efforts. Uh, If you didn't get a missions brochure or a pledge card, just stop by the missions board out here in the lobby and and get one, but fill it out and turn it in. Be a part of what we're doing together as a church family to adopt families around the world that need to hear of God's mercy. Are you motivated by mercy the way that Christ was? Mercy was the bridge that brought Matthew to Jesus. Maybe that was your bridge as well. Then let that be the basis for your compassion towards those who have not yet come to Christ. In Luke 18, Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The parable may well have been based on a real event in Christ's life. In it, the response of the two towards God were polar opposites. And Jesus was teaching about what a correct response to God's mercy should look like. The Pharisee thanked God in his prayer that he was not like one of these robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. He spoke of what he did for God. And the tax collector stood at a distance outside the temple, looking down at the ground, beating his chest. 
and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He spoke of what God did for him. And Christ pointed out that it was the tax collector who went home justified before God. He had humbled himself in the reality of God's mercy. The reality of God's mercy should be overwhelming to us. We depend on it. We need it. We are sinners no greater than Levi the tax collector, and God is poised to pour out his mercy on us. His desire is mercy. May God help us to make that our desire as well. God, have mercy on us. We are sinners in desperate need of your mercy. And as freely as you give that mercy to us, let us also freely offer that mercy to those around us.